0: morning and welcome it is good to see you this morning we especially welcome our guests here with us this is a very special sunday for us uh it's very unique actually i should have kept track but it's uh, not too many times that we've had the lord's table and a believer's baptism on the same sunday but that's what we're going to do today and uh, so that is very exciting there are those who want to declare their faith publicly in an act of baptism and we will do that so actually you're going to be all participants you are participating in the lord's table if you're a believer in the lord jesus christ and you're participating in the baptism by being a witness and listening to their testimony of what jesus christ has done in their lives so it's exciting time exciting day and so we come to that today with great anticipation of what god's going to do well in the 1990s uh My wife and I lived in the upper Midwest about two and a half hours north of Chicago, up along Lake Michigan there. And it was during that era from 1989 to 1998 that was called the Michael Jordan era of Chicago Bulls basketball. And uh, it was an exciting time. And even though we never got to go down to the United Center to watch Michael Jordan play, we followed his career. And uh, he was probably the greatest basketball player in the NBA of all time, is what I've read anyway. And I think his statistics would bear that out. In fact, uh, when he left in 1998, that's when we decided to leave and we came here. I don't know where he went, but we came here. And interestingly, at the same time, Mike Holmgren, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, left when we left. And he came out to Seattle, so we followed Mike Holmgren as he came out here. But uh, So anyway, it was the Michael Jordan era, and uh, people would try to get seats along the tunnel where the players would run in and go into the floor to play the game. And if you watch those games, you notice that everybody tried to get a high five from Michael Jordan, tried to touch him, tried to share in his glory. You know, we as human beings want to share in some glory. That's why we have... Uh, uh, such a a celebrity culture, I guess, that surrounds us. We want to be part of the glory. Uh, I think it's inherent in human beings that we want some part or some piece of glory if we can get it. Uh, So those seats along the tunnel in the United Center where people would try to share in Michael Jordan's glory. Uh, Well, when Michael Jordan left, the glory departed the United Center. In fact, they should have changed the name to Ichabod, Ichabod, that Old Testament name. The glory has departed uh, because Michael Jordan's glory certainly departed. Well, there was one game that I really, uh, really go back to and enjoy. There was a reserve player named Stacy King, Stacy King for the Bulls. And during the 1990 season, they were in the playoffs. And King only started something like six games and he only played an average of 15 minutes per game. But one night during an overtime game against Cleveland, the coach sent in uh, Stacy King and he contributed to this important victory. In fact, uh, if you read Stacy King's quotes, you'll find this one. He said that it was one of the greatest memories of his life. It was the night that he and Michael Jordan scored a combined total of 70 points. Uh, That night, Michael Jordan scored 69 points for an (laughs) all-time career high. And so, Stacy King, he scored one point in the game. And uh, so, he's trying to share in Michael Jordan's glory. Well, what is glory? Uh, We're starting a new uh, series uh, this week, beginning, and it'll be a six week series. It's entitled The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. Uh, But we may have difficulty defining glory and knowing what it really is. We as Christians talk a lot about glory and about glorifying. Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about it, and so we're going to start this six-week series uh, about looking at God's glory. The first two weeks we'll be looking at God's glory, and then there will be more practical application the following four weeks as we try to determine what does it mean and what does it look like to glorify God. The weight of glory... That comes out of 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where it reads, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Uh, When I read that, I have to ask myself, what does glory weigh? You know, if we could put it on a scale, what does glory weigh? way well i have an idea that as we go through our study we will find that it is infinite in weight in fact the hebrew word that's most translated in the old testament as glory into the english glory is the hebrew word kabod kabod it's a fabulous word really as you do a word study in it this word belongs to god and it originally carried the idea of weight substance and even a burden even a burden The idea is that the glory of God gives weight, meaning, and significance to all of life. Without God's glory, there is no weight, significance, substance, or meaning to life. We may be very involved in all sorts of activities, but without the glory of God, we do not have meaning, significance, or purpose in our lives. All of life matters. Your life matters. Your life has the weight of glory. That's an amazing claim as we look at scripture. The reformers, we're coming up on to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Swingley, and many other reformers, and they developed what is called the five solas, or five soli. Uh, Sola is a Latin word, which means alone, and uh, it's the word alone, and so they came up with these five solas, which uh, evangelical Christians adhere to. Uh, Eternal salvation is by grace alone, sola gratia. It is through faith alone, sola fide. It is in Christ alone, sola Christus. And it's in scripture alone, sola scriptura. And the final one where we will camp is it is to the glory of God alone, soli deo Gloria. Sadly, in our day and age, uh, most people, it's all about solely me, Gloria, to my glory alone, is uh, the culture in which we live in. And yet, God is the very definition of glory and what it means to be glorified. It's not an abstract belief. In fact, a man named uh, the Apostle Paul wrote these words some 2,000 years ago. Whether, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Isn't that an interesting statement? We think of glorifying God as, you know, going on the mission field, which can glorify God, or doing some stupendous act of faith when Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And over the next six weeks, we will be talking more about that. We typically pass over passages like this, thinking we really understand it, but it's quite striking when you actually take time to listen to what Paul is saying there. What does it look like to eat and drink to the glory of God? How do you prevent your actions from turning into mere expressions or habits or ritual or religious cliches or even false humility? Well, glory in scripture uh, is uh, found often. My grandfather, my mother's dad, fought in World War I in the Army. And uh, evidently, where he was at, sometimes to eat, they would be fed mule meat. And he always told me as a kid that when you eat mule, when you chew it, it gets larger and larger and larger in your mouth. And as I've been preparing for these couple of messages that I will be giving, on the glory of God, it is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and it is an amazing subject so we will just be basically doing an introduction and a quick overview the problem is is that there's not uh, we're not lacking in material in the old testament that word is found some 194 times glory is found in the new testament some 161 times and there's many additional occurrences of the word glorify Uh, I did count those, and there's 73 in the New American Standard Bible of glorify in the Bible. However, uh, you you look at theologies and books, and it's almost like most theologians assume what we know glory means and what it looks like. Both the Old and the New Testaments record the revelation, the power, and the glory of God in the world around us. In fact, according to the prophet Jeremiah, Uh, God's attributes reveal his glory in the work of creating the world. Uh, They are are specifically mentioned, three are specifically mentioned, his power, his wisdom, and understanding. Listen to Jeremiah 10, verse 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he stretched out the heavens. Later on, Jeremiah would reiterate uh, about God's power in chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and thine outstretched arm. According to the writers of Scripture, the great truth about God is that he is glorious, that he is the embodiment of glory, and it is proclaimed everywhere. But unquestionably, the central Old Testament passage that uh, details the glory of god is found in psalm verse or chapter 19 verses 1 through 6 and in these verses the passage that bill read for us there are five questions that are answered about the glory of god five questions about god's glory which the psalmist answers the psalmist is david of course The glory of God, first of all, in this passage, is seen as his power to create. By the way, this is more of a theological series, and so we will look at three different passages today. But Psalm 19, 1 through 6, the glory of God is seen in his power to create. The first question we see is found in verse 1. Where do we see God's glory? Look at verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Of God, We see it in the heavens, the expanse of the skies above us. Of course, these days we can't see the heavens, can we? But uh, they're out there, and I'm confident that they're out there. Uh, the same word that is used in the account of the creation in Genesis 1-6 and also refers to the heavens above us. I am told, and I have read, that we can see with the naked eye about 3,000 stars when we look at the heavens on a clear night, the Milky Way alone contains some 200 billion stars, and a million other galaxies exist in addition to the Milky Way. It gets so big, I, can't, I cannot hold that into my head any longer. God puts them all there, and he keeps them in their respective, respective places by his power. However, you know, the popular view today is that there was nothing divine about it. This was just an evolutionary act of natural processes and forces without any outside help or any kind of form of divine being. And the evolutionary view glorifies the power of nature and the human central part of what philosophy tells us in contrast to what the Bible declares about the power of God. So we see God's glory in his creation, especially in the heavens here, the psalmist declares it, The second question is found in verses 1 and 2. How often is the power and glory of God displayed in creation? Look at the second part of verse 1. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This revelation is made perfectly clear according to God's word. Verse 3 plainly states that the revelation of God's glory is without words. It is a nonverbal declaration. And we often think that the mute cannot speak. Those who cannot talk cannot really speak. And yet we all use different forms of non-vocal ways of communicating. And uh, common nonverbal ways we think, we think of uh, facial expression, we think of uh, a body expression, hands on our hips, or a wink of the eye, a clenched fish, an, an aggressive stance. All those things communicate something about who and what we are. And a nonverbal communication can even be clearer than verbal communication. And the heavens declare clearly, though without words, the power and wisdom of God revealing the aspects of his glory. The fourth question, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, excuse me, I skipped over the second question, didn't I? How often is the prayer, power and glory of God displayed in creation? It's in the tenses of the verbs in verses one and two indicate the heavens continually tell of the glory of God and the work of His hands. And then there is clear revelation of the glory of God, and that is through these nonverbal communications. The fourth question is: Is how widespread is the communication? Look at verse four. It says, "Here their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the earth. In them he has placed a tent for the sun." Uh, this is Hebrew poetry, and so there are metaphors and figures of speech. And yet, it is a universal declaration of God's glory. It is worldwide. Their line means their call. It's like the heavens call, continually acknowledging the glory of God, and it goes out to the entire world. The heavens are calling out to the entire world to look at the evidence, at the data of what God has done. The fifth question is, how how strong is this revelation? And here's where the psalmist uses the sun in verses 5 and 6. In the end of verse 4, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat, he uses this idea of a bridegroom coming out of his tent to meet his bride, and the picture is the sun rising every morning, setting every evening, and even a person who has no visual sight will feel the heat of the sun. It's because he can, and he should ask himself where that heat is coming from. The sun is strong, nonverbal message that a powerful and wise God existed to create the world in this section of the psalm the word the name that's used for god is the name l capital e l it is a root word and it denotes power leadership authority and greatness it is used of god here furthermore the the, the name for god elohim which is from the root l is the name of god used 46 times in the creation account in genesis chapters 1 and 2. creation demonstrates the power leadership, authority, and greatness, and those characteristics reveal his glory. Creation is telling of the glory, majesty, wonder, and splendor, and otherness of God. When we recognize it, when we rejoice in it and revel in it and celebrate it we give god the glory because it is all around us we were made for this human beings were made for that and we ought to do this it's a good thing to do psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 tells us ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory do his name great glory is found in god's creation and it's revealed there Secondly, if you'll take your copy of scripture and turn over to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians in the New Testament, God's glory is seen in his power to sustain the universe. Not only is he creator, but he is the sustainer of all that we see around us. Look at Colossians chapter one, verses 16 and 17, where it says, for by him, speaking of Jesus Christ, for by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Here, creation is said to be the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also repeated in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll see in a moment Hebrews 1, 3. And such a statement should not surprise us because Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity or the triunity, In him, all things hold together. That's a fascinating statement when you really think about it and do the word studies. The Greek word for that, what's translated hold together occurs only here in the New Testament. It is a one occurrence word in all of the New Testament. It means that all things cohere or are bonded together in Christ. He keeps everything in the universe in order and sustains all things. Contrary to Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and the other deists in the founding of our country, God just didn't wind up creation and walk away and leave it to its own devices. The Bible declares clearly that Jesus Christ holds all things together. Think of the practical implications of this. If Christ were not keeping all things in order, all the atoms in place, everything in place, there could be no space program because we couldn't count on a probe being launched and finding its target or a spacecraft circling the earth without the guarantee that all things are holding together. Uh, Men could not have landed on the moon. They wouldn't even have been able to find the moon because it would wander all over and disappear probably unless Christ held things together. In any case, our God holds it all together with his power, creator, sustainer, And thirdly, the glory of God is seen in Christ's power to govern. This speaks of the sovereignty of God. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Another great declaration, and here the emphasis is on the power to govern. Who controls all of this? Who is sovereign, if you will? Who is the king of all of creation? We have a creator, a sustainer. And now we have the sovereign in verses 2 through 3. Look at chapter 1 of Hebrews, 2 through 3. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And, listen to this, upholds all things by the word of his power, upholds all things. By the word of his power, he is the one who has made the ages. In this passage, the Lord Jesus Christ is credited with creating the very ages, all of the the sections of history. And that's why I try to remind you, I remind myself that even though the world looks like it's out of shape and it's adverse and difficult, and there seems to be out of control and much chaos This is the best possible plan that God had in his mind because God being infinite in his exhaustive foreknowledge knew all possible scenarios and this is the one he chose for all of history. It may not seem like that in your life and yet you need to recognize that this passage talks about his glory in his governing. He has power to govern. He is sovereign in that in control of all things at all times for his glory and for the good of his people. He created the ages, he sustains the ages. Fulfilling God's purposes would, f- would require tremendous, if not, and obviously infinite power, even if everything in the universe ran smoothly with no opposition. But we know there's opposition from Satan and the evil forces, there's opposition from human beings. And yet God is working out his perfect plan. He upholds them by the word of his power. This does not mean that our Lord merely sustains, but he is also actively carrying all things forward to their God-ordained conclusion. Christ is no, uh, is no atlas simply carrying the world on his back, but he's moving and working, governing all things for his glory and for the good of his people. And so we see that in God's sovereignty. That's why I encourage you, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, thank God that he is sovereign. Remind yourself that he is in control of all things, at all times, in all places, for his glory and for the good of his people. One of the most uh, known verses in the Bible was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, Romans 3.23, where he wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the idea, no matter how perfect we try to be, we miss the target and we fall short of God's glory. Sin cuts us off from God, makes us want to accumulate glory for ourselves. In the story of the Tower of Babel, the people essentially said, we will use our intelligence, our technology, and our own strength to build a tower. We will not ascribe to God the glory due his name. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. And we know how that ended. That's the human condition, though, when we seek glory outside of who and what God is. We are in the name-making business. We want to accumulate glory for ourselves come make a name for ourselves genesis 11:4 in the long run it never works out we just look silly i read the story about a newly minted military officer who was just given command of a military base and the first day in his office he was in his office and a private knocked on his door and the officer wanted to look important and have the glory due to a new officer And so he picked up the phone and pretends to have a conversation with a very important person. And he said, yes, sir, General, I'll get right on that. You can count on me, sir. And then he hangs up the phone and turns to the private and says, okay, private, what do you want? And the private looked really confused and said, well, sir, I'm here to hook up your phone. (laughs) Trying to accumulate glory for ourselves just looks silly, doesn't it? And God is the one. And over these next six weeks, we will be talking more about what it means to give God the glory. Uh, Author J.R. Vassar, uh, who is a missionary to Burma, now Myanmar, uh, writes the following about ministering in Myanmar. He says, one day, we were doing a prayer walk through a large Buddhist temple, and I witnessed something very heartbreaking. A large number of people, very poor and very desperate, were bowing down in front of a large golden Buddha. They uh, they were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into the treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. On the other side of the large golden idol, scaffolding had been built. The Buddha had begun to deteriorate and there were a group of workers diligently repairing the broken Buddha. And as Vassar said, I took in the scene and I realized there were broken people bowing down to a broken Buddha, uh, asking the broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while somebody else fixed the broken Buddha. The insanity and despair of it all hit me. We are no different from them. We are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory deficient people looking to other glory deficient people to supply us with glory. Looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand, he writes. It is futile to look to other glory-hungry people to fully satisfy our glory-hungry lives, and doing so leaves our souls empty, unquote. The universe constantly shows us where true glory is in three ways. First of all, in the creation of the universe by God's power, which turns the displays not only to his power, but his intelligence and his divine nature. Secondly, in the universe, it's being constantly sustained by the power and the word of Christ. And thirdly, it is being moved in all of its events, circumstances, and opposition to the goals and ends for which God has made it through the ages. He is moving it towards completion. Surely, the power and the glory belong to God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 4.11, towards the end of your Bible, says, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. for.